Hey, welcome to Small Findings. I'm Jim. This is the podcast where I find things out and I share them with you. Some of them, some of these findings might be things new to you. Uh, Some of them might be things that everybody, except for me, knew. Uh, But this week, the findings are recording a computer playing music is actually sometimes not that much easier than recording a fallible human playing music. Also, uh, there's more findings from Beverly Cleary's biography, including findings about boarding houses, sandwich spread, and the way librarians were judged in the past. And then, finally how well musicians get their messages across to fans. Uh, And one particular case involving napalm death and a head of state. Uh, Two out of three of these segments were actually recorded outside. Uh, And one, one finding I got out from that is at least... At least with the uh, segment in which I was walking back from my kid's school, is that I sound like I'm out of breath when I'm walking. Maybe because I am, but there's there's a bonus meta finding there for you. All right, let's let's hear these findings. <laughs> I've been recording an album, and the way I've been recording it is I have a web app generate the music, and then I record the output from that web app. And you'd think this would be simple, uh, but it's actually turning out to be very similar to uh, if I were playing the music on a guitar and recording it. The first thing that's similar is, unlike um, if I create some music via uh, scheduling a bunch of synths to play, um, when you do that, you can usually render it faster than real time. So, you know, you, you arrange your music and then you have it render really quickly, like usually 50 times real time speed and you have your thing. Well, uh, I didn't really build that into my web app, and I just record by taking the output from from Firefox and uh, getting it into Audacity. So it has to be done in real time. The entire album is about two two hours long. So the other thing about it is, like me playing guitar, the <laughs> the web app messes up. I think specifically it's Firefox and Chrome that, uh, you know, depending on what's going on with system resources or what's going on uh, with... Oops, sorry, there's a bus coming. With various bugs in those browsers, or, or maybe my bugs, who knows. Um, you get these 
these pops after a while. So, you know, they're not, they're not real intense. They're kind of weirdly like vinyl pops or something like that. Uh, <laughs> but they're, they're, in my opinion, not acceptable for recording. But weirdly, I'm okay with, with it when I'm just listening to it, quote, live. So what I do is I don't have it play for more than 40 minutes at a time. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, the weary producer saying, all right, I, I know you can't get this in one take, so let's, let's do this in five sessions. Um, so, so I do that, and then I have to carefully stitch it together. You know, uh, you know and, and in some ways I'm kind of whining, like, uh, or maybe unreasonably. There's people who, who do like really, um, you know, professional producers who, uh, you know, this is controversial, but they, they try to make really fancy drummers sound perfect. And so they're, they're carefully moving around all these little notes and aligning things. Uh, it's not like that. There's only, there's only four wave files to stitch together, but you still, still have to get it right. Uh, otherwise it will sound unnatural. The other dismaying thing I've noticed is uh, not every single time, but under similar conditions like no apps open but Firefox and Audacity, there will still be drop-offs. Sorry, I'm going into a tunnel now. But yeah, there'll just be sudden dropouts. Like there'll be like a tenth of a second of silence uh, in like in two places. And that, that is also not really acceptable. So I have to do the equivalent of a punch-in. Like if you've, uh, you know, recorded yourself playing guitar and you messed up, you know, one beat and you don't have the, the true warrior's heart and you don't want to record the entire thing again, just record yourself playing that one thing. And then you kind of cut it back in. Sorry, I had to stop there because I was passing by some intense garbage truck action. But yeah, I just was saying, um, you, I ended up having to do punch-ins with, with uh, this piece. I would, there, there are, I think, two dropouts that were brief but very noticeable. So what I had to do is uh, I had to start the web app over, uh, starting on a particular place in the music. So at least I was able to do that and then just record that, uh, you know, a few seconds of it playing. I'd have to go back and I'd have to mix it in uh, carefully so that that part didn't, uh, you know, was like, it didn't seem too loud, but also covered up that gap. And um, I just found it strange that I had to do this. The other thing uh, about it is, um, you know, if you're familiar with recording music, uh, sometimes it's cool if you don't play things the right way. Uh, 
in multiple takes, but sometimes it's extremely inconvenient. This, this is one of those cases, and I actually have a way to make sure that the web app plays the same thing every time. It, it can take a, a seed that it uses to um, calculate its, uh, you know, quote, random uh, decisions. Um, I think I think in Small Findings episode 13, I, I talked about a little bit about how that works. So there's a seed, and if you provide it, it will make the same decisions uh, every time it uses that seed so, so that the music turns out exactly the same. Unfortunately, I was a little tired during some of this, and I, I did forget to use the seed uh, sometimes. So I would I'd do it and be like, what is going on? This doesn't seem quite the same. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I got to put in the seed. And then I have to redo that, you know, 20 or 30 minute recording. So, you know, your your musician or yourself not getting it right, uh, not playing consistently. That also happened, even though I was using a computer to make this music. But, you know, for reasons that were my fault. So sometimes you can end up with a computer program having the same problems as a human musician when you're recording music. I finished reading the Beverly Cleary biography, My Own Two Feet. And again, I I find it an interesting look back into depression times and I guess I guess beyond all the way through all the way through the 40s. A lot of times when you read something like this, there's not a lot to pull you in, but Beverly Cleary is somebody that lived all the way until I think last year. Um I think she died at the age of 108 or something like that. And she was writing books well into the 90s. So there's something to pull you back through time. Relatable figure who, although is from another time, is also from your time if if you've read her books. So I'm just going to go through the things uh, that I didn't really know about that went on during the 20s through 50s. Uh, first, there's there's a part where she talks about the, the men at her community college uh, in California having to miss classes one day because it was cold. And because it was cold, there was danger of oranges on the orange trees freezing. So what they did was they went out and they lit what were called called smudge pots, big pots of oils in the orange orchards. And what this did was create a thick, warm smoke, kind of a, a miasma of sorts, all around the orchard. And I guess it would raise the temperature uh, around the oranges a little bit to maybe help keep them from freezing. I don't really know how effective this is, but... I guess when there's a lot at stake there, do anything you can. 
The other thing that I thought was interesting was that uh, Telegram delivery people seem to go above and beyond. I don't know if you have to pay extra to get extra special Telegram delivery um, treatment, but there is a part of the book in which her family went camping. So they left their home and they went to a campground and they were delivered a telegram there. It was an important telegram informing them of the death of a family member. But without having really told anybody where they went, somehow the telegram guy found them at the campground. My guess is he must have asked around, uh, knocked on some neighbors' doors, and made the connection and uh, found his way to the campground. I, I can't imagine somebody delivering something now doing anything like that. Uh, and there's only like a 85% chance they'll get it to your actual address, even if you are home. I, you know, I'm, I'm making that number up, but so there is, there's a stronger, uh, level of service there with telegrams than there is with packages these days, I think. Engineering stereotypes were still strong way back in the 30s. Here's, there's a part, let me, I'm trying to look it up here, at which uh, she goes to some dance and there, there are some engineering majors there. And what she says about it is that, uh, she says, I seem to attract engineering students, all of them looking tired and overworked, with some slide rules in their shirt pockets by which they indicated that they had dropped in for a breather before going back to their books, belying the campus, campus myth that engineering students entered the engineering building and were not seen for four years. All the engineers were serious, and we had little to talk about as we tried not to tread upon each other's toes. I never once met an engineering student at an assembly dance who was cheerful or a good dancer as they concentrated on their feet Sorry, there's a cat on my book. All right. They seem to have the weight of future bridges and skyscrapers on their shoulders. Apparently, they recover from the oppression of the School of Engineering after graduation. Since college, I've met a number of interesting engineers who, although they were serious men, could talk, laugh, and even dance like anyone else. So there's an interesting uh, underlying assumption there, which is that the engineers are men. She, She doesn't... She is, she's fairly feminist for somebody her age um, and is interested in equality uh, and things like that. But uh, here, she doesn't even consider the idea like, oh, maybe, maybe there could be like a woman engineer because there probably weren't any women engineers. Um, the, the other thing is, um, oh, sorry, something just... Knocked off piano by a cat. All right. And yeah, why, you know, they, they're thought of as really serious people who build uh, bridges and skyscrapers. Now I'm not sure we think that much of engineers, even the, the engineers who actually do that kind of stuff have a lot of assistance from conventions and uh, methods and, and computers 
Uh, and, and of course, there's the, the controversial uh, software engineer, right? The, the non-real engineer uh, who don't really do anything like that. Okay, so I wrote these notes down on my e-ink tablet and I have different pa- I had different page numbers in this book to uh, talk about. But my cat, Dr. Wiley, uh, was just rolling around on it. And now, <laughs> now that page has been turned into um, two lines. <laughs> and she changed the background template. And, uh, you know, I accidentally hit home to leave the document. So now I can undo those changes. So for memory, I'm just going to talk about uh, a couple things, a couple more things I found interesting. One was the prevalence of boarding houses. Uh, she lived in a boarding house. A lot of other people she knew uh, lived in boarding houses. And there's this typical arrangement where you would, you know, six or seven people would be tenants in a house and each given each each person would be given one room and they would be provided meals. Her friend Claudine was a teacher who taught in an isolated sawmill town and she lived in a boarding house and this is what it says about that. She and an uncongenial teacher shared a room in the house of a young married couple who lived outside town. The wife packed their lunches, which every single day consisted of sandwiches made of white bread and bottled sandwich spread, bottled sandwich spread, of mayonnaise and chopped pickle with no meat, not even bologna. Dessert was always a piece of chocolate cake. Dinners were not much better, once a week, she served wieners and sauerkraut. So, oddly, the chocolate, uh, chocolate cake seems uh, luxurious. Uh, chocolate, so you'd have chocolate cake every day. But, yeah, having a lot of lunches that uh, are made from mayo and pickle uh, from a bottle sounds pretty rough. But uh, it, it seems as though they, it, it seems implied that in this boarding house and in the boarding house that Beverly clearly lived in, you, you couldn't just go out and buy your groceries and then cook for yourself. Maybe you could buy groceries, but you might not have had access to the kitchen because they, they always seem to just have to accept whatever the boarding house people gave them. The other thing I found uh, strange and unexpected was that they were very snooty at library school. So she was a librarian. She went to library school. She asked about getting into the library school at uh, UC Berkeley, which is where she did her undergrad. And yeah, they said they only accept straight A students. And uh, they were offended that she asked about children's librarianship. Uh, at the University of Washington, where she ended up going, part of the grading was based on her attitude and demeanor. So in her book selection class, the professor told her that she is giving her a C 
even though she has otherwise done good work because she looked bored. She did some co-op work at a library in Portland, and the librarian who reported on the quality of her work back to her school said that they thought she was in poor health because she leaned on things. And finally, there's Beverly Cleary's first book deal. It was for Henry Huggins, the novel, and it was, the deal was, the book would sell at $2, and they could offer 8% on the first 10,000 copies and 10% thereafter, with an advance of $500. It, you know, in absolute terms, that seems like a horrible deal, but uh, I tried to look up what the average book deal is today, and it's another one of those things where people are so secretive, much like band label deals, that uh, this could very well be a good deal. I, I have no idea what things are things are like today in terms of book deals. Anyway, it's a good book. It'll definitely get you into other eras, so I, I recommend uh, looking through it if you happen to have access to it. I was just reading that the uh, pop punk band No Effects had a deal with a brewing company, but that that deal got canceled because they made fun of the Las Vegas shootings. I think they made some joke about uh, killing country fans, and then people booed them. And I think Fat Mike was, what, you're offended? And uh, you know, I, I don't think he should be surprised. A, it's a dickish thing to say. B, I don't think people go to no effects to uh, get the most fabric of society destroying kind of music they can. No effects, if you haven't heard them, uh, is a is a punk band, but you know they they basically sound like um, bubblegum pop with a little bit of distortion. So I don't think Fat Mike should have been surprised there. Uh, they are they are very good at business, though, um, if, if you haven't heard about that. But uh, it was kind of interesting to hear that they had a beer beer deal, being being as commercially minded as they are. I mean, they they are heads and shoulders above other punk bands in terms of business practices. It's it's very strange. But um, somebody I was chatting with mentioned, well, I mean, these, these kinds of things happen a lot. Um, I don't know if you remember, but uh, when he was a vice presidential candidate, uh, Republican Paul Ryan said that Rage Against the Machine was his favorite band. Uh, now, in that case, Rage Against the Machine <laughs> did not uh, roll with that. Uh, Tom Morello wrote a column uh, explaining how that's not what Rage Against the Machine is about. Um, but these kinds of things happen because just because you make music that people enjoy, it doesn't mean they're going to 
absorb the message. I, uh, I'm a notorious lyric ignorer. I often don't know the lyrics to my favorite songs. And because a lot of my favorite songs are, are metal, like particularly death metal, I, I, they're, they're kind of unintelligible. But I, I do like to, I do like to see what the band's about. And I, I try to respect the spirit of the band. And if the band is, um, you know, I, I don't agree with the message of the band. Um, you know, there's no hard and fast calculation, but they, they better be super amazing if uh, they're going to be doing shitty things like that. And I, I can't think of too many bands that are, say, you know, like I can't think of any bands that are like pro-Trump, for example, uh, that I'm just like, well, this is just too good. So I have to keep uh, I'm going to keep listening to this. That said, it made me think of something I found out a few years ago. Um, the current president of Indonesia, uh, his, uh, he goes by the name Jokowi. Um, he is, he's a fan of metal and, uh, his, his favorite band is reported to be Napalm Death. So this is, this is a, this is a kind of thing where, um, you know, Napalm Death is is the most famous grindcore band, but it's pretty hard to get uh, Napalm Death into the pages of, say, The Economist or something like that. But this caused that to happen. So uh, during Jokowi's candidacy as an outsider candidate, this is this is one of the things that was reported. Um, so he was, I think, he was elected in twenty fifteen. And as we know, a lot of, a lot of outsiders got elected to heads of state uh, during that time. But uh, there's a point at which uh, Jokowi was going to execute several drug smugglers. These were small-time people. They weren't heads of, uh, you know, drug smuggling organizations or anything like that. But uh, Indonesia is very zero tolerance about that. So the, the lead vocalist of Napalm Death, Barney Greenway, appealed to Jokowi and tried to explain that you know, Napalm Death thinks that the death penalty is wrong and that's, that's what they stand against. And he, he asked them, he asked Jokowi to not execute these people. I think you know where this finding is going. He did execute those people because, uh, again, just because you like a band doesn't mean you've absorbed their message or, or even their basic ethos. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, the death penalty is a popular thing in Indonesia. It's a, it's a populist move to, to execute people. So Jokowi just went ahead with that. I guess the only tiny silver lining to this, and it isn't much of one, it's just something that I find amusing, is uh, they they ended up talking about Napalm Death on NPR, and uh, it's pretty funny when, when they explain um, what Napalm Death is. Here's, here's a snippet. 
All of this has led to a bizarre situation in which a grindcore growler is appealing to a head-banging head of state to spare the life of a grandmother convicted of drug running. Napalm Death's Mark Greenway happens to be a vegetarian and animal rights advocate. He growls out lyrics criticizing social injustice. But he says he's aware that not all his fans share the band's ethos. And so that's where it becomes slightly difficult, because obviously you can't force people to go one way or another. You know, you can only try and appeal to their human side, if you like. So, yeah, there's that finding. Uh, I think, I think maybe most of you already knew this, uh, having seen uh, plenty of politicians, uh, older politicians be big fans of peace and love and then of course you know order all kinds of uh misery and death upon people and that's it for this episode's findings do you have any findings that you want to share with me or do you have any comments on the quality of these findings or uh, anything to add, or just want to say hi in general, uh, you can email me, if that's the case, at smallfindings at fastmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.